Hey guys, Pastor Kent here. I'm excited about releasing the second one of our economic theory uh, podcasts. Remember, it's not financial advice, and I don't think you'll be stumbled on this one this week. If you haven't listened to last week's, make sure you catch up on that, which is a bigger kind of macro view of economics in the world. Today, we're going to be looking at, or in this particular broadcast, we're going to be looking at what does the Bible say about constructing a Christian worldview and the 10 fundamental principles that make a view of economic theory Christian and biblical, as opposed to just trying to pull parts of it out from uh, different theories that you might hear in school or hear talked about in a coffee shop or something like that. How do we actually construct one? So we're going to look at how to construct a Christian worldview of economic theory that sets us up for our following or final one in this series on economics. What does the Bible say about how to use your money? Great to be with you today. As you know, this is part two in our little series on economics, especially in light of the craziness of economics that are going on all over the world and the fear that that is creating in the country. In fact, I had done a little bit of study this last week in preparing for the message and came across a stat that the government surveyed the people in the United States to see the number one issue affecting them. And the first number one issue was the incompetence and (laughs) poor leadership of government officials. But number two and number three was economics and inflation. So it seems that there is a sense of... uh, uneasiness in the country about where we are economically. And so that's why we're really talking about this right now. Last time I gave you a big picture, kind of a a layman sketch of how economics work and economic theory in the marketplace. Today, I want to give you a Christian worldview of economics. And then next week, we'll talk about how God's word talks about utilizing your money so that regardless of the economic situation or climate that you're in, it'll be uh, beneficial and promote your flourishing because you'll be arranging your finances according to the way that God's Word recommends you do it. So today we're going to look at a Christian view or worldview of economics. And you want to begin by defining what is economics. And so I got out the old uh, Thomas Sowell economics textbook, and this is how he defines it. Economics defined, a system for production and distribution of the goods and services people use in everyday life. In other words, how do we allocate the goods and services that we produce and get them over and distribute them to other people throughout the rest of the uh, uh, community, whatever that is? Now, he says that's a standard definition, but he doesn't really like it because it's missing a piece. And the piece that it's missing is it assumes that you're in a perfect environment and have unlimited resources, which, of course, we know we don't have. And so he prefers this one. The system for allocating scarce resources that have alternative uses. And that's exactly what economics is trying to do. How do I take these scarce resources that I have some sort of influence or control over and reallocate them in other ways? And what is the system that we do to do that in an equitable or fair way or whatever we want to use in terms of the standard of doing it correctly? And if you'll remember last week on the uh, podcast, I said basically economics is figuring out how to allocate scarce resources, since we don't have an infinite supply of anything. And if that's the case, let me uh, read to you from what one scholar says, who's a theologian, and he kind of specializes in this area of economic theory. He says this, regrettably, many American Christians know little about economics. Furthermore, many Christians assume the Bible has nothing at all to say about economics, but a biblical worldview actually has a great deal to teach us about economic matters. 
And then he says this, a really important phrase, the meaning of work, the value of labor, and other economic issues are all part of the biblical worldview. Christians must allow the economic principles found in Scripture to shape our thinking, end quote. And that's exactly right. Whatever the theory is for how to allocate these resources, it has to be consistent with the Bible. And that's why there's a lot of competing systems. We know there's a really gross and destructive system known as Marxism, and a lot of people are buying into it. In fact, younger people under 35 have embraced Marxism in the United States more so than in previous generations. And they're, they're believing, which I believe, it because it's contrary to Scripture, a lie. And if they pursue that, it's going to end up where other countries who have embraced Marxism end up, and that is the death of millions and millions of innocent people. Because if if you don't allocate your resources that are scarce correctly, according to the wisdom of God's word, then it's misallocated. And when you have misallocation, people die. They die of starvation. They die of disease. They die of frustration and anger and conflict and things like that. And so it's very important that we have a biblical understanding of economics. And so I want to begin by giving you 10 basic principles of a Christian understanding of economic theory. In other words, a Christian theory and practice of economics has to include all these 10 things. And the first one's going to be super obvious to you. At number one, has to be a system that brings glory to God, because that's our goal in everything. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And this is the bottom line for every Christian and every Christian who's thinking about maintaining a worldview. Does this worldview of how we're going to allocate our resources, our money, et cetera, et cetera, bring glory to God? If it doesn't, then it doesn't fit into the Christian worldview, and it needs to be discarded and replaced with something that does. The whole point is, the way that we participate in the economy, or we practice economics, must be done in a way that is consistent with the revelation of God, because that's where we find His glory, how to know what His glory is. It's going to be recorded in His Word. We have a, an, we have a transcendent uh, authority for our economic system if it's rooted in God's word. And what do I mean by that? It means that if it's rooted in God's word, it's rooted in what God's will is, and that means it's irrefutable. Too bad if somebody disagrees. Too bad if someone has in their mind a better theory. For a Christian, that's we don't consider it. It's in conflict with God's eternal truth. It's a transcendent. It's the dominant. It is the overpowering uh, principle that we operate on as Christians. And it has to be that way in every area of our life, whether it's sexual ethic or it's in economics or it's in the way that we you know, uh, treat our spouse in marriage. It doesn't matter what it is. It has to be consistent with that if we're a Christian. The second is this, and that is that we must re- uh, recognize and affirm human worth. The foundation of cr- Christian economic theory goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the creation of man. That man was created in the image of God, and God gave him some instructions, and that whole process that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 give us a lot of important clues in understanding how God wants economic theory to work out in terms of culture. Because remember, the command is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. That's the mission of every human being outside of the gospel mission. It is to actually move into the world and reorder it and organize it according to the principles of God's word. And so in Genesis 127, we have this famous verse, God created human beings in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. 
And so this gives us some points to consider for our economic theory, and that is human beings were created in God's image as representatives for God. In other words, humans represent God to the rest of creation, and that's their role, is to reflect God-like character. Remember, you're in a perfect environment, it's called Eden, and therefore you perfectly represent God. You're his representative, appointed representative, in a sense, a diplomat to the rest of the world. And we are charged to reorganize the world according to the principles of reality that God founded the world upon. And so this, this means that mankind, when you consider his organization and who he is as in the image of God, is superior to the rest of creation, more valuable than the rest of creation. He is the apex or the crowning jewel of God's creation. And in fact, the creation exists part in part to support the existence and the flourishing of humans. And it's the job of humans to know how to order the created order in a way that will maximize human flourishing. We'll talk about that in a minute. So a couple of principles. Number one, that means that our economic interactions must be done in a matter that affirms human worth and dignity and never denigrates it. So whatever the system we have, it cannot be like a, a multiple caste system like they have in India in, in, in years past. I know they're moving away from it now, but my point, that's just an example. That's another reason why slavery is not acceptable, and that's why we removed it in America in the 1860s, uh, because of this basic principle. It's rooted in God's word. You can't have an economic system that prospers and flourishes on the back of slaves, because that denigrates the humanity of the slave. Number three, that believers, or excuse me, number two, the second thing is, it means that believers carry God's name with them wherever they go, and therefore they must be careful to conduct themselves virtuously in every economic transaction. And what does that mean? It means that in a Christian worldview, that when you engage in economic transactions, you're not trying to win at the cost of the other person. You're not trying to, and you would certainly not do anything immoral or ungodly or not virtuous in your interactions with them. You wouldn't shave the truth. You wouldn't, har you wouldn't uh, hide from them certain important facts if they're going to be buying this used car from you. You would let them know all the problems that it has, et cetera, or whatever. You'd be honest. But the, the bigger point is, if you are representing God, then you want it to be a win-win. You say, I don't want to do this deal if you don't benefit, and I benefit as well. We have to both benefit. That's the idea behind it, because I'm recognizing that you have human dignity and worth, just as I do, and I don't want to take advantage of you in any way possible. And then number three, under this being created in the image of God, is that those who work, whose work show God's glory, uh, whether we realize it or not, whenever we're working, we're actually glorifying God, because he created us to do that. That's part of the created order. So every time someone is doing honest work, they're actually bringing glory to God, whether they realize it or not. People may believe they're working for their own personal reasons, but they're actually working out a very impulse that God put into them that would cause them to want to go work and be productive. That's part of what it means to be a human. And that's why God said, now go be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue the earth. It's intrinsic to human nature to want to do that. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you're actually glorifying God. And I would add this, as I got it, I'm basically stealing this from David Bonson in his latest book on it, that you're going to find your life purpose when you dedicate yourself to doing good work. 
under the auspices of what God's asked you to do. Whatever it is that he's gifted and impassioned you to do, as you work hard at that, you're going to find fulfillment in your life. He's just written a great book. It's coming out in February. I'll give you more information when I get the full uh, details. Anyways, when this impulse that God puts in our heart, because we're in his image, is acted upon. Remember, God worked six days, and then he rested. He's giving us an example. He wasn't tired. He's actually setting an example for us to follow. We are actually reflecting the character of God when we work hard in that way and then take a day off. Third big thing, uh, principle, is this. A Christian worldview of economics must respect private property and private ownership of things. In Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, in commandment 8 and 10, God says this, verse 15, you shall not steal. That's not a very long commandment. It's pretty straightforward. You can't take uh, what belongs to another. That's what stealing is by definition. So if it's possible to steal, it means that it people have an intrinsic right to own personal property. Because if you couldn't own personal property, you couldn't steal it. So you have a right to personal property in the commandment of stealing. And then verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, it is wrong for you to desire to possess what belongs to your neighbor. That means that it actually belongs to them. They have a right to it. So personal property rights are enshrined in the Ten Commandments, and this is part of the Christian worldview, that you have a right to personal property and that no one has the right to take it from you by force. And that's why the Eighth and the the, uh, Tenth Commandment are given to us, to remind us of that, and this is how we behave morally. Now, here's an important point. There are some economic theories, let's say Marxism, for example, that treat the idea of private property as a problem. They don't believe anyone should own personal private property. But the Bible never considers private property a problem to be solved. And in fact, God views it as, how would I say this? God's view of private property implies that owning private property is a natural byproduct of ordering your life consistent with the structure of reality instituted by God who created it all. And when we operate in this manner, we will and should be and should expect to experience fruitfulness and flourishing. This is God's part of God's plan. So if I go out and I fulfill the command of God to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue, to reorder the world around me in the most effective way I possibly can to promote human flourishing and a profit for me, then I now possess those things. No one has a right to take them from me. This is God's reward to me as a person who's working consistent with his plan for reality. It's the person that doesn't work that becomes a problem, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Fourth big principle, our view of Christian economics needs to take into account the power of sin. The Bible says in Romans 3, 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we take the Bible's teaching seriously about the widespread effects of sin in our world, then we can expect some bad things to happen, even though we may be pursuing a righteous cause. It happens all the time. 
If you have a good marriage, once in a while, you'll do something you wish you hadn't done because it wasn't a good thing to do. The Bible says we all stumble in many ways, and we can stumble in this area as well. And we have to take that into account and when we're putting together our understanding of an economic system. So in a Christian economic understanding tries to do two things. If we have a Christian worldview, we're trying to do two things with whatever economic theory we want to operate on. Number one, we want to minimize the effects of sin. We want to structure things and the way we behave, the way we interact in ways that minimize sin. What does that mean? There's a lot of practical applications of this, but the people who study tax theory know that if there are certain, there's a certain range that people feel is a just tax. And whenever it moves out of the range of a just tax, people begin to cheat on their taxes. They begin to, to, to hide it because they feel like now the, the, the government's crossed the line and they're taking too much, more than the, what they think is fair or right. And that creates an environment where there's dishonesty taking place. And when it's really bad, it creates a whole black market, it starts to thrive because they think there's too much that the government's taking from me. Because remember, I have a right to personal property. And just because a bunch of people got together and voted to take some away from me doesn't mean it's really righteous to take it away from me. I need to be willing to give it of my own free heart. And the Bible does say, pay your taxes. And as Christians, we pay our taxes, period. And if we don't like the rate of the taxes, we don't cheat and go underground and go into the black market, even though many are tempted to do that. We do what? We try to vote in new people who will change the tax rates for us. And in the meantime, we got to pay our taxes and do whatever's legal to avoid it by investing in certain mechanisms or whatever is out there. We're not talking about that today. But the point is you want to pay your taxes, do it legally and with a good conscience because your job, number one, is to glorify God. But if a, if a government is not running righteously or an interaction isn't righteous, then people begin to cheat. And this is the problem of the sin nature. If we don't seriously address the importance of maintaining our integrity and put guardrails around how we function in the economy, the temptation will be to lure people into greater amounts of sin than they might otherwise not be involved in. And we have to be careful with that. We want to create incentives for people to actually act consistent with what is righteous by the way we implicate, implement the system that we're doing. The second is we have to realize that there are no, per, there are no perfect solutions to any economic or societal problem. There are only trade-offs this side of heaven. I got to trade this problem for that problem. And I think this problem has less downside than that one. So I'm going to make the trade. And that's all you can do. That's the best you can do. There's never a perfect solution till we get to heaven. And an economic theory that is Christian takes into account because we're in a fallen world, there will never be perfection in the way we structure either our economics or as economics is impacted by government, by the government structure that we employ. They'll always have a downside. We want to minimize the downside, maximize the upside, and understand it's not perfect. And that's because we live in an imperfect world. Christians are responsible to make necessary decisions and trade-offs that will promote human flourishing, fruitfulness, that's profit, and the glorification of God. That is the Christian worldview in pursuing these things in a fallen world. Number five. It must uphold and reward righteousness. Psalm 34, 14 says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Hebrew word shalom. That's the word for flourishing and pursue it. God is commanding us 
to pursue human flourishing. And if we do that and occupy our time and our thoughts with that, we're not going to be involved in the front part of the psalm, which says, depart from evil and do good. He wants us to pursue flourishing. And when we pursue good, it will produce flourishing. And whatever economic system we have, it has to reward the things that are good, true, and beautiful, things that will result in human flourishing. Every economic and government system comes with legislated incentives and penalties. And in the Christian worldview, those incentives and penalties must uphold and reward righteousness. That's the goal of structuring a Christian understanding of what we want. And so you say, okay, the government has some things that we think are not promoting human flourishing, like the abortion laws. So what will we do? We would go through the appropriate channels and vote to put people or representatives in place who would change the legislation and promote human flourishing. This is all part of a Christian worldview. It's all part of an economic worldview. It's understanding that whatever we do, we want to promote human flourishing. And that's the idea. Proverbs 17, 13 says it this way, he who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Now think about that. Let's take the word house or home away and exchange it for a nation. The nation that returns evil for good, evil will not depart from that nation. See, a proverb is a principle given to us that has universal application. And if we are structuring a society that rewards evil, we're going to get more evil. If we structure a society that rewards more good, you're going to get more good. And it is the role of the Christian worldview, both as it affects economics and the general population, is to create structures within society that promote good as opposed to evil, with the result being that human flourishing can take place and God would be glorified. You're going to get more of what you reward. That's the idea. Number six, we must reward creativity, hard work, and risk-taking creativity, hard work, and risk-taking. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, <laughs> oh man, I think I read this to my kid one day, verses 10 to 12, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, okay? This is an order from God's word. If anyone will not work, he is not to eat either. <laughs> for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies sitting around, gossiping, shooting the, the bull or whatever. Verse 12, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bed, bread. In other words, quit mooching, get a job, work hard, okay? Uh, one Christian scholar, a guy named Al Mohler, writes this. He says, initiative, industry, and investment that's the same thing as creativity, hard work, and risk-taking, are three crucial words for the Christian's economic and theological vocabulary. Initiative goes beyond action. It is the kind of action that makes a difference. Industry is human work done corpor corporately, in other words, with other people. And investment is part of the respect for the private property found in Scripture. Investment, as it turns out, is as old as the Garden of Eden. With that which accrues valuable value is honorable. See what he's saying as a theologian? He said, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find out whenever you do something that adds value, 
it is actually an honorable, an honorable thing to do. And the impulse to accrue that value is also honorable. The desire to do that is also an honorable desire. And to increase value, you have to do something. You have to take a risk. And that's risk-taking. Thus, a Christian economic theory in, indicts any able-bodied person who, do, who won't work and anyone who won't respect private property or reward and investment. His whole point is, whatever the worldview is, you can't make arrangements for guys who are fully capable of working, and when I say guys, I mean men or women, who are fully capable of working but don't want to, would rather just goof off. And uh, I have an older brother. He's probably dead now. I don't know what happened to him. But when he, he's a super smart guy, but when he turned about 19, he decided he was going to become homeless because he said it was easier to live on the street in a nice environment like Southern California, homeless, and not have to work and have the pressure of work and enjoy just kind of living off the fat of the land. And so that's what he decided to do. And I ran into him like three or four times during the, the next probably five or 10 years. And then after that, I never saw him again. And I don't know whatever happened to the guy. But bottom line, his attitude was 100% wrong. He goes, I'm going to just, you know, live off of whatever I can get from the government or from, you know, handouts or whatever. This is not a, uh, an acceptable biblical option. And this is... Uh, has to be taken into account when you construct a Christian worldview of economic theory, which is what? We don't pay for freeloaders endlessly. We help people who are in a fix get off on, get onto their feet and move forward again, but it's never to be a perpetual or an eternal kind of situation. Number seven, we must seek to reward and promote savings. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says this, go to the ant, oh sluggard. <laughs> Sluggard's the guy that wants to lounge around. Observe her ways and be wise which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. In other words, doesn't anyone tell them what to do? Doesn't have anybody just, you know, beating down uh, their, their door and say, hey, get to work, get going, get moving, get up, wake up, you know, that kind of stuff. You, you grow out of that when you're like six, seven, eight years old. Those days are gone, but be like an ant. Be self-motivated, self-disciplined, and uh, focused on what you're going to do, and then plan wisely. Notice the ant is working wisely. She prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest so that when that's the fall, so that when the winter comes, she has something stored away. Because why? We live in a fallen world. There's no guarantee that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And we just have to plan for the future. And we what? We trust God for the best. But we also know he's sovereign, and sometimes things don't go well economically, and we have to be prepared for those downturns in times of difficulty. Savings is part of that prudent way of understanding the economics around us. In fact, uh, it may be what provides survival for some people in a, a severe economic downturn. And the caution is simply this. We still are not trusting in our savings. We're trusting in God who gave us the ability to work, produce, and save. Psalm 52, 7 says it this way, look, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the greatness of his wealth, he took refuge in his own destructiveness. You see that? When you put your trust in wealth, you're actually trusting the thing that will destroy you because you've abandoned God and basically turn to idolatry, the worship of wealth, because you put your trust in it. Whatever you entrust yourself to, whatever you entrust your soul, your, your mental health, your financial, whatever, that's your God. 
And he's saying, you do that, you're destroying your own life. So while we save, our trust is not in the savings. Our trust is in God at all times. But to be prudent, we should save in advance. And we'll talk about kind of principles of saving next week. Number eight, we got 10, so three to go. Number eight, it must uphold the family as the most basic economic unit. Remember, Genesis chapter two says what? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, there's not a helper suitable for Adam. He figures that out. So God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And it becomes man and woman, and they become one new unit, one new flesh, one new family. The family is the most basic economic system in the world. There's nothing more fundamental than that. And our responsibility as Christians is to understand we want to do everything we possibly can to form families and help them grow and be fruitful and flourish. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 8 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and it means his own family, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, it's completely inconsistent with the Christian worldview that a <clears throat> that a, a man and a woman who formed a family don't work in order to provide for the family, that they're just kind of ignoring that responsibility. This is completely unacceptable behavior for Christians. We have to say the number one responsibility that I have to do is to take care of my family. That's my job. That's what God wants me to do. And I have a partner in that because I'm married to Linda. Together, that's our responsibility. And this is part of a Christian worldview. It is not the government's job to take care of me. It's not rich family members to take care of me. It's not the job of the church to, you know, have a, a special little spot for me to take care of me on the side. It's not up to anyone else to take care of my family, but me and my wife under and in submission to God. That's the Christian worldview. Now, there can be tragedies and things like that. That's that's perfectly acceptable. We'll talk about that later, but it can't be a perpetual for the rest of my life. I'm just going to mooch on everybody around me. That's not acceptable. God wants us to have a good, strong work ethic that honors him. So Adam and Eve, if you look at it then, were the first economic unit. The result is the family, as defined by the Bible, is the most basic and essential element in an economy, and that's where you learn how to function economically. If the family unit is deficient, no government can re really meet the needs of its citizens anyways. We have to, as, even as a government system, we have to be able to teach people how to provide for themselves. And we, when the family is strong, then the society is as strong, the government is strong and doesn't have this burden on their back. But when the family's weak, you really can't fix it. And if you talk to inner city pastors, they'll say the same thing. The problem here isn't money or anything else. The problem here is the lack of uh, intact family, primarily the dad's out of the house. And it's not just a black problem. It's anyone who has the inner city culture, black, brown, white, whatever. If they're missing dad or they have this value system that we're just going to take checks from the government, we're never going to work, then it ends up destroying the, the, in, the character of the person that's receiving that such that they become dysfunctional and then they begin to act out because of a lot of different things. And uh, I don't want to get into all the details of the economics of the inner city, but the biggest problem, like the pastors will tell you, is we need to have intact families with dads there and teaching their kids to be responsible, hardworking people. And the, the families that do, they work their way out of the out of the ghetto. And those who don't, they end up spiraling. I'll, I'll just tell you another one. I've known from my experience, I've probably run into at least 50 of these cases throughout my life in ministry. I don't know a single, now here you go, not a single person who's a trust fund baby who's happy. Not a single one. 
They have access to millions and they, they get their stipend from their trust fund and they're never, never, never happy. Why? They don't work. Work has a, a sense of fulfillment attached to it because you're aligning yourself with the structure of reality as God re- has created it. And so when I am working hard, I see the fruits of my labor, I, that's my profit, and I see flourishing around me because of my hard work, I feel good about myself and I'm fulfilling the purpose for which God created me, and that is to what? To reorder the world and bring it under his kingdom control. But if I'm just looking for things to occupy my time, I run out of things to do, and then I start getting into big trouble, and I'm basically a miserable person. And they, they I'm just going to leave it there. I don't need to talk anymore if you've seen... Uh, <laughs> A person, a trust fund baby, they're almost always miserable, unless they found a way to use it creatively, but I haven't really met anyone in that category. doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm just saying I didn't meet them personally. Number nine, it must be a worldview that rewards generosity and proper stewardship. Proverbs 11.25 says, a generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered, that God's basically built into the structure of reality the sense that what you give will come back to you in some way or form or fashion. And so when you give yourself to work hard and planting seeds into the soil, you're investing generously in the soil, you're going to have a generous harvest. And the same thing in friendships. If you uh, invest uh, emotionally and generously in your friends, you'll have close friendships and fruitful friendships. Wherever you invest yourself, there's always a return. And God says that's part of how the world works. And this also affects economic theory. And the point is generosity is a foundational building block of Christian economic worldview and Christian character. And so Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, in other words, don't put your trust and faith and hope in the fact that you're rich, right? Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to, are you ready for this? Enjoy. So if you're doing well financially, enjoy it. God wants you to enjoy it. He's provided it to you so that you could. It's part of the rewards of your labor. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So if you have an abundance, God wants you to have that. He wants you to enjoy it, and he wants you to share your abundance with others so that you can add value to other people's lives. It doesn't mean just stand around and write people checks as they walk by. The idea is strategically invest it in things and causes and people that can make a difference. Use that to to strengthen and to multiply your fruit for God's kingdom. Verse 19 even says, storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, what life is really all about, and that is building and extending God's kingdom with the resources that you have. You're going to find it's joyful, it's fulfilling, and it's uh, be rewarded when you get to heaven. And that brings us to the last one today, and that is a Christian economic worldview must be driven by an understanding that we serve an eternal kingdom primarily and that we will be rewarded based on our faithfulness and investment into that kingdom. When God's all done looking at our life, and he's going to look at it, he is going to say, how did you advance my kingdom? You're saved, I know you're coming into heaven, but how did you advance my kingdom? That's the primary job. You are to structure your life in accordance with the reality that I created in order to promote human flourishing and the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. How have you done that, Christian? 
Matthew 6, 19 puts it this way, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In other words, no investment in this world is permanent. Every one of them can be uh, lost or destroyed by a hazard of some kind. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, how you invest the resources that you've accumulated in where you invest them will determine where your heart's going to be. It actually, your heart follows the planting of your seed. If you plant financial seeds in ministry, your heart will be interested in ministry. When I was at UCLA, I learned this principle the hard way. Uh, I got my first scholarship check when I was there, and I, so I ran into downtown Westwood, and they had the Merrill Lynch office there, and I asked to speak to a broker, and they saw that I was a student at UCLA, so they brought in the vice president of the whole place of that particular branch, and his, his name was Arnold Newman. He's not with us anymore, I'm sure, but Arnold Newman, he's sitting there, and he goes, well, what do you want? Well, I want to take my scholarship check, and I want to double it so that I have even more to live off of. And he, he kind of laughed and he smiled. He says, wouldn't everyone like to be able to double their money quickly? He goes, anyone can double their money. They just can't do it quickly. You're trying to do it in a semester or a quarter here at UCLA, which is 13 weeks. You're crazy, but I'll help you. So I met, I sit down with him and he says, here, you're going to go in here. And you're going to go there. Now, in those days, there's no internet. There's no internet. So they have a ticker tape that goes across the front of the office. It's not even digital. It's literally a paper one that's just going across. And if you want, you can stand in the lobby and you can watch these tickers go by, which is the prices of the stock as they go by. And it goes through all of the S&P 500 stocks going all across this tape. And the only other way you can know what the price of them are is you get the next morning's paper, the first edition, and they have a whole section that are that is printed in the back. And so Arnold had me buy Flying Tiger Airlines. So I remember I bought this Flying Tiger Airlines with my scholarship check. And the next day, guess where I am? I'm sitting there in the lobby first thing in the morning because the market opens at 6.30 in the morning on West Coast time. And I don't have a class till eight. I'm just watching the ticker go across like this, like a crazy man, just watching it, looking for a Flying Tiger. And in about every 15, 20 minutes, oh, there it is. And then I get to school and I'm buying the LA Times because in the back of the Times, I have how it closed the, next, the, the last day. I lived nonstop thinking about what L uh, Flying Tiger Airlines was. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I couldn't think about anything else. I'm constantly, why? Where your money is, there will your heart be also. And that's what's, your, your heart follows the money. I had never, ever looked at a ticker tape before that in my life. I've never looked at a, you know, the LA Times in the back section of all the stocks listed in the back. I didn't care because I didn't have anything invested there. But as soon as you invest, that's where your heart goes. And what Jesus is saying is be wise. You want to grow a greater appreciation and a greater love for the kingdom of God? Invest financially in the kingdom of God because in the end, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that matters because it's the only thing eternal. It's the only way that you can invest in eternity is by setting it up ahead of time, by building the kingdom of God with the resources you have now. Don't waste them on things where moth and rust could destroy or take them away. So that's kind of the lesson, these big 10 things. I know there's a lot. You might want to think about them, but we're trying to construct a biblical worldview of 
how we should handle our economic theory and our economics. Next week is the practical one that talks about biblically using your money in that fashion. God bless you. Thanks for hanging out.